afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Alexander Pines from the Department of Chemistry and Dr. Thomas Hard from the Department of Physics here at UC Berkeley to discuss the recent Nobel Prizes. Also joining us is our tech correspondent, Jimmy Lin, who will tell us about web archives. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, but I am a little bit disappointed. Oh, what's going on? Apparently, they're revamping the Clean Air Act, and it doesn't seem as good as it used to be. Yeah. See, I thought that would be a big issue during the uh, gubernatorial campaign, which is now just come and pass there. Uh-huh. So uh, it'll be interesting to you see. You just want to congratulate the winner first. Yeah, we have to congratulate the winner. I'm, I'm actually sad that we didn't win. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we were trying we were really hard. that close. I think we were close, and I, I could that feel the momentum. Close. Just didn't swing our way. All right, next year. Next year. <laughs> but apparently the EPA has issued new guidelines for the Clean Air Act, and this is going to affect about 17,000 power plants and factories throughout the country, most important being the coal-operated plants. So before, the regulations suggested that if you're going to upgrade part of the plant, you have to get something that's performing better than was before. But with this new regulation, it's saying that as long as the cost of this new part is not more than 20% of the entire cost, then you can have something that's functioning just as well as it was before. You don't have to have cleaner uh, outputs as a result of this. I see. So as long as it's performing up to specs, whatever the specs may be, the previous specs, the previous specs, you're right. fine. Hmm. But this could be bad news because these specs could be stuff that was right. from the 1970s. Outmoded, yeah. Yeah, so uh, many people are, especially environmentalists, they're very uh, disappointed in this. I would be too. I mean, that's that's really no step forward. Right, but something interesting is that the American Chemistry Council is in full support of this new measure. Okay. Uh-huh. So I would, well, I'm a bit You right know, now. some money's changing hands somewhere with that deal. Like, yeah. American Chemistry Council, I haven't even heard of these guys. Well, they used to be called like some chemical society, but because the word chemical is so politically negative now, they changed it to chemistry. Oh, I see. <laughs> What's in a name? Yeah. We know why they're in support of it then, because they're <laughs> chemical manufacturers. Yeah, so if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the September 1st issue of Chemical Engineering News or, uh, you know, look up the EPA webpage. <laughs> All right, so do you like it burning and grinding? Mmm, of course, the kimchi, right? I think it's good stuff, too. Yeah. How about chili? That's even better. Chili? I can take it hot. What if I ground up the chili and put it on your heart? What about if I was in a hospital and you put in my IV uh, solution? Just <laughs> your IV drip? Yeah, you know, have a 100% chili solution running you know, You know, I'll say, you know, as, as a Korean-American, you know, we would actually do that just for fun. We'd take the ground-up kimchi, we'd stuff it in our veins, and that was like the pure hit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll tell you, that was good stuff. <laughs> Soak it up, man. <laughs> If you're not ethnic, you, you don't know these things. But anyway, so it turns out, though, that chili receptors are very important in detecting heart pain. Really? Yeah, so the same receptor that's actually involved in sensing the hotness or the burning sensation of the chili uh-huh. is actually also found on the surface of the heart. And researchers believe that this is the sense that people get when they're having a heart attack, is this burning pain oh. from these receptors being activated. Uh-huh. And it also explains why certain patients may have silent heart attacks, where they have a heart attack but no pain, because they're just localized on the outer surface of the heart. You can have heart attacks inside the heart. Right. So most heart attacks occur on the surface.
surface of the heart, right? That's true. And you have a release of a lot of chemicals like bradykinin that activate these receptors and cause changes in blood pressure and stuff like that. Okay. So this is an amazing finding by Huli Pan and co-workers at the Pennsylvania State University. And they were the first ones to actually localize recently this uh, receptor called, oddly enough, the vanilloid receptor. Vanilloid. You'd think it senses vanilla, but <laughs> apparently not. The vanilloid receptor one, and they show that it's localized only to the outer surface of the heart. It has else. fine taste, huh? It does. What goes better with heart than chili? So. <laughs> so it's quite amazing, and they've done some experiments where they've taken out the receptor and shown that these hearts don't react as much to stress responses from heart attacks. Maybe if you just cut out the pain, it will uh, live happily ever after, that, right? Well, or at the very least, you'll die with no pain. And <laughs> what better way could to go than that? <laughs> wow, innovation, man. <laughs> <laughs> better living through science, you know. So if anyone's interested in this, you can find this in the recent edition of the Journal of Physiology. feel better when you're happy? Of course I do. Do you feel worse when you're sad? Eh, yeah, I guess so. How about how about with your health? Do you feel better when you're happy? Do you feel healthier? Of course, I, I can fly. Turns out, it's been long thought, but never quite shown, that when you're happy, you tend to have a stronger immune system than when you're depressed. Wow. I thought they've been uh, suggesting that for many years. I have been suggesting it for many years, but they've finally gotten around to uh, doing a study to show it. This was a group at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison took a look at activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is associated with depression. Okay. They had people write about either the happiest or the saddest moment in their lives, mm-hmm. and immediately after that, they uh, scanned their brain to see that what kind of activity was going on in the uh, prefrontal cortex, and then right. they gave them a flu vaccination, okay. and sometime later they tested the number of antibodies that they had produced, uh-huh. and those people who had been writing about their happiest time of life ended up with a higher level of antibodies later on after taking the flu vaccine. Wow, so we have clinical proof now. Clinical proof. Happiness is good for you. That if you're happy, you'll also be healthy. Wow. So does this suggest recommendations in terms of maintaining your happiness for your health? Well, I don't know. Next time you have a cold, try thinking happy thoughts and see what that does. Ah, can almost fly then. That and talking to your plants. And if people want to know more about this, they can take a look in our very favorite journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Excellent. So I guess we're all familiar with Moore's Law, right? I, I know Moore quite well. Ah, so yeah, what? Does the rate of his appearance double every, every two years? <laughs> what is it? The processing power of computers will increase uh, every... Well, uh, double approximately double. every 18 months or so. Okay. But some uh, analysts have thought that in terms of creating these faster chips, we may be reaching some limits in the near future. But some breakthroughs in, in nanotechnology suggest that it's possible that we still have many more years to go in terms of uh, reaching any limits. I see. So people have been worried, I guess, for quite some time that they're reaching the absolute scale in which you can minimize things. Right, and the scale that they're referring to is the size of a transistor, uh, the on and off switch that these computers rely on. For now, the limit is around 90 nanometers mm-hmm. in terms of the, uh, the dimensions, but if we can go down to molecular dimensions, say on the order of you know one nanometer or even less, right. we could get a significant increase in terms of the processing power that we can get with, with the chips that we have today. Right, but this will require, I guess, a lot of work in terms of nano device Right, so the approach is going to be completely different from what we have. Uh, right now, we have a top-down approach in which when you uh, create the chip, you basically carve out mm-hmm. your transistors using various laser and lithographic techniques. Mm-hmm. But now there's the uh, the bottom-up approach in which you know we build it from the molecules themselves. Ah. Certain groups here at Berkeley are also working on these right. kind of devices using quantum particles or nanoparticles, which could act as the transistors. Right. 
Hewlett-Packard is actually very optimistic that this will eventually take effect. In fact, the, uh, the military is investing heavily into this concept, and they believe it could have many great consumer benefits. I'm, you know, I'm sure it will, yeah. yeah. As well as uh, bombing foreign countries we don't like, it seems. Right. Well, probably the uh, the most significant possible military application would be, say, decryption of right, you know, sure. computer codes, you know, more power, better decryption. Mm-hmm. So there's an extensive article that's being written in the uh, Technology Review that details a lot of these developments, and uh, it's available right now online. Cool. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, we'll be joined by Professor Alexander Pines from the Department of Chemistry and Dr. Thomas Hart from the Department of Physics here at UC Berkeley to discuss the recent Nobel Prizes. So stay tuned. Come up to meet you, tell you I'm sorry. only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the Nobel Prizes were awarded this week, and among the Nobel Prizes in Physiology and Medicine were awarded to two men, Dr. Paul C. Latterber of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and Sir Peter Mansfield of the University of Nottingham at England. They are both awarded for their work on magnetic resonance imaging, the technique which makes possible the non-invasive imaging of the human body. And joining us today on Berkeley Grox to give us a perspective on these prizes is Professor Alexander Pines from the Department of Chemistry here at Berkeley. Professor Pines' research involves, among other things, investigating novel methods for nuclear magnetic resonance. Dr. Pines, thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, again on Berkeley Grox. It's a pleasure to be here again. I'm just wondering uh, your perspective on this prize that was just awarded in physiology and medicine. I think it was well-deserved and well-given at this time. I think it's wonderful. It's one of those cases where it's not just a case of, yeah, it's right, but this is a particular case of long overdue. This is a very well-deserved prize. I think magnetic resonance imaging has been around long enough that there isn't a person who's not familiar with the uh, methodology, hasn't experienced it, or knows someone who's experienced it, and it's revolutionized diagnostic medicine. I think it's long overdue, and they're the pioneers. They're the guys who invented it. I see. And so what was their actual contribution to the development of the magnetic resonance imaging? I wonder. Sure. Both, in fact, previously practiced and continue to practice to some extent the methodology of what I'd call the parent technique, which is nuclear magnetic resonance. That's the, the sort of the basic phenomenon 
derived from which is magnetic resonance imaging, which was an extra step of genius, of course, to conceive of and implement. I think we may have talked in the past briefly about magnetic resonance. Let me say a few words about it. As a diagnostic tool in physics, chemistry, material science, and biology, it works roughly as follows. Molecules have atoms. Those atoms have, at their core, nuclei, and very often those nuclei have spin that make them like little magnets. And in a magnetic field of the type provided by a nuclear magnetic resonance NMR or magnetic resonance imaging MRI machine, these spins tend to precess the way compass needles do in the Earth's field at certain frequencies. And as a diagnostic tool for molecules and materials, the diagnostic was that the frequency of that oscillation depended on where it was in the molecule. So it told you something about the molecular structure, the molecular identity, analysis, and so on. In fact, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was given last year to Kurt Wutrich for using NMR, the spectroscopic tool, to study the structure of proteins, biological macromolecules in solution. What Lauderbur and Mansfield did was to realize that this methodology of emitting these particular waves, which come out in the radio frequency, that that could be encoded not just to give molecular properties, but could be encoded to give you a position in space. So it's a spatial encoding of that type of radio frequency. That's what makes it non-invasive, unlike x-rays, radio waves are very low energy. So your body emits inside a magnetic field radio waves. The magnetic field is not uniform. That was the genius of Lauterbo's first realization of how to spatially encode. So the frequency depends on where it is in space, because where it is in space determines what magnetic field is experienced. And so you can distinguish the signals coming from different parts of the sample by the frequencies that come out and then encode those in terms of the density of the material, typically water and other parameters, inside the object or subject. And from that, you can discern a a picture. And it's a diagnostic picture because it tells you something about the distribution of tissue, tells you something about whether that tissue is diseased because the signals that come from, for example, cancerous tissue is different. The signal is different from the signal that comes from normal tissue and so on. And so it's the spatial encoding of that information and the reconstruction thereby of that information into an image that was, say, the stroke of genius that led these two scientists to make an imaging modality out of it that today is, as I said, widely used as a diagnostic tool. So if it, if it weren't for these magnetic gradients, then, could you still encode the uh, spatial location of the frequencies coming out? or is it No. Let's see, that, see, typically gradients in the past were considered a nuisance because if you're trying to do spectroscopy, you're trying to get sharp images and you want the field to be uniform. So the whole technology of nuclear magnetic resonance, spectroscopy, that Mm -hmm. is, is a tool for studying molecular structure, materials, composition, even biomolecular information. The whole push was towards these big superconducting magnets that are very uniform. Mm -hmm. That's what makes them bulky, expensive, and most analytical labs have them. I mean, from materials companies to research labs to pharmaceutical companies. But they're uniform. And the reason the field is uniform is you want the molecules in different parts of the sample to experience the same magnetic field so you get sharp signals. They all give you the same spectrum of signals, the same fingerprint. And any degradation in the quality of the field due to the presence of gradients, a so-called inhomogeneous distribution of the magnetic field, causes a consequent inhomogeneous broadening of the spectral lines. It makes the picture blurry and the spectrum less of an incisive fingerprint. So Lauderba first, but Mansfield from a slightly different point of view, which was complementary, realized that if you go the other way, all the other way, give up the spectral information Uh and say, no, I don't want that. I'm going to 
specifically impose a strong gradient of the field that, that overwhelms everything else and dominates the spectral distribution so that I can distinguish different parts of the space, I'm not going to ask about molecular properties and molecular spectra. I'm going to ask about spatial distribution. Then we'll go later to the molecular properties. That is the crucial step. And encoding that in three dimensions subsequently into an image is a really new type of modality. It's the kind of stroke of genius that when you look back at, you say, as one does with great work, that it's obvious in retrospect. It's beautiful, simple, and incredible. And he actually did the first experiments. They did experiments, actually, and showed what the pictures might look like. Wow. So it's really well-deserving of the Nobel Prize. Indeed. Okay. Well, I just want to thank you very much for that very insightful explanation and uh, perspective on uh, the recent Nobel Prize and for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. It's a pleasure, and I look forward to next time you sit inside a machine, the feeling if you're in there, and I hope it's nothing serious, but just a a checkup, knowing how it works. All right. Very good. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. You were just listening to Professor Alexander Pines from the Department of Chemistry here at UC Berkeley, providing some insights into the recent Nobel Prizes in Physiology and Medicine awarded on Monday. The Nobel Prizes in Physics were also awarded this week on Tuesday to Alexei A. Avrakazov at Argonne National Laboratory, Vitaly L. Gunzberg from the Lebedev Physical Institute in Moscow, and Anthony J. Leggett at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. This year's Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded for decisive contributions concerning two phenomena in quantum physics, superconductivity and superfluidity. And joining us today on Berkeley Grox to provide some comments on these Nobel Prizes in Physics is Dr. Thomas Hard. Dr. Hart is a postdoctoral researcher working on the superfluidity of helium-3 in the lab of Richard Packard in the Department of Physics here at UC Berkeley. Dr. Hart, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. It's my pleasure. Curious, if you can uh, give us perspective on uh, these recent awards in physics. You feel they were uh, deserved at this time, and maybe a little bit about what the science was behind this award? Yes, I'd be happy to. My particular area of study overlaps most closely with that of Anthony Leggett. The other physicists, Alexei Abrikasov and Vitaly Ginsburg, are also well-known to me, and their contributions are everywhere throughout my textbooks. But I'd like to comment mostly on Tony Leggett's contribution. In, I think it was 1996, uh, the Nobel Prize in Physics went to three experimentalists for the discovery of superfluidity in the isotope liquid helium-3. And at that time, some of us in the field felt that it was a bit of a shame that they overlooked Tony Leggett's contributions. And the reasons are that Tony was involved in the initial analysis of their data and subsequently developed the theory that others of us have subsequently, in our research, verified very high precision over the later years. The, he, he basically contributed the theory behind a lot of the work on superhelium, but he wasn't awarded the prize at that time. Right? Yeah, that's right. And part of the reason is because the Nobel Prize, as I understand it, is limited to three researchers for mm-hmm. any one prize. So we're especially happy that his contribution to helium-3 and to the many other fields that he has worked on are finally recognized. The other theorists, Abrikasov and Ginsberg, have also contributed to the theory of helium-3 as well as the broader field of superconductivity, and they continue to contribute today. So these are all extremely important theorists whose work has laid the foundation of my work. Well, I just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Hart, for providing uh, that great and insightful comments on uh, these awards in physics here. Okay, thank you very much. You were just listening to Dr. Thomas Hard from the Department of Physics here at UC Berkeley discussing the recent Nobel Prize in Physics. 
The Nobel Prize in Chemistry was also awarded today to two men, Professor Peter Ager of the Johns Hopkins University and Professor Roderick McKinnon from Rockefeller University, both for discoveries concerning channels in membranes. Brick and Grox would, of course, like to congratulate all the winners of this year's Nobel Prizes in Science and, of course, thank our guests, Professor Alexander Pines from the Department of Chemistry and Dr. Thomas Hard from the Department of Physics here at Berkeley for providing their comments on the awards. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Jimmy Lin will join us for the technology update. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, Frank Ling and Jimmy Lin join us now for the technology review. Take it away, guys. All right, and for this week's tech review is Jimmy Lin will tell us a little bit more about what the web was like a couple years ago or maybe even more. Jimmy? Uh, Thanks, Frank. So today I'd like to talk about an institution called the Internet Archive, which is a group based in San Francisco. Uh And it was founded by Brewster Kale, who is a pioneer in building supercomputers and also very early Internet services. And so lately he's been involved in this organization, which he founded, and its primary activity is to try to preserve and archive the web. And they've been doing this since about 1996. Okay. And what they do is they have little programs called robots or spiders, depending on who you talk to. They do roughly the same thing that search engines do. Oh, sort of like what Google does. Yeah, what search engines like Google do is they have little programs that crawl around the web and load web pages and index them. But what the Internet Archives robots do is they actually save the entire web page, and they also try to save the images Uh as well. And they've been doing this for a few years, and then a couple years ago, they created a service called the Wayback Machine, where you could actually type in a URL, and it will show you a list of dates on which they crawled that particular website. And you can click on the date and see what that website looked like back then. Uh So, for example, you could go to uh, www.archive.org, and on that homepage there's a box where you can type in a URL. So if you typed in www.berkeley.edu, you can see that the first time the Internet Archive archived Berkeley's homepage was back in 1996. And you'll see that its webpage looked much different than it does now. It looks much more primitive. Uh uh And also, if you browse around enough, you'll see that throughout the years there have been two more versions of the website. Oh, I mean main revision. Main revision. So so what you see now is essentially the third main version of the website. Wow. And so it's it's pretty fascinating to see how web designs have evolved and how people's expectations have evolved. Where do uh-huh. they store it all? They have huge bank of hard drives and tape drives as well. So they have archival tapes okay. storing it. And when the Internet Archive first started, the contents of the archive weren't available online because they were stored on tapes and it was hard to retrieve them. Mm -hmm. I frankly don't know how they get the contents from the tapes onto uh, a server 
hmm. from what you can read. I, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you you get you type in a site and it shows some dates, but when you click on a date, it says it's not available. You know, there's still some uh, little quirks like that, and it might be related to retrieving. Wow, this is more like a time machine, huh? Yeah, I mean, they have just terabytes of data. <laughs> a terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. And um, one of the, um, you know, the archive isn't perfect. There are a couple of main challenges that the Internet Archive has to deal with. One of them that people will notice when they use it is sometimes they'll see missing images. Oh, I see. Now, sometimes the images actually load later. So the text will load first, uh-huh. and it looks like a bunch of images are broken. And then later on, the images will get filled in. Oh, okay. But sometimes the images don't get filled in at all, and so um, so often there, sometimes there are missing images. Also, another problem is with the increasing prevalence of JavaScript mm-hmm. in web pages. It's harder to to archive web pages that that contain all of the same JavaScript behavior because typically a lot of the JavaScript is stored in separate files from the HTML files that you directly see. And so if the robots don't also download the JavaScript at the same time, then some functionality might be broken. So we can also see ads from that time too, huh? You, you might be also able to see ads as well, that's right, if it, if it, was, if it was able to capture those images too. Oh, I see. And then finally, the, probably the biggest problem is that the web is growing so fast mm-hmm. that um, pages can appear and disappear before the robot has time to crawl. Because right. it can only crawl so much data per year, and it takes, I'm not, I, I don't remember exactly what the timeline is, but it, it can take on the order of years to do an entire crawl of the web. So, yeah, yeah, so it's you know, exponentially larger now. Right, so you, you have to make choices about what parts do you crawl more often, mm-hmm. what parts change more often. These are the same types of issues that uh, search engines also have to deal with. And um, the uh, Internet Archive also has other things besides archives of the web. Uh, For example, they host an online version of the Prelinger Archives, which is a large archive of uh, films. And these films tend to be uh, ephemeral films. So that's advertising, educational, industrial, political, and amateur film, as opposed to commercial movies. So you can see old political advertisements. You can see old uh, promotional films and uh, things like that. And so it's it's quite fascinating. Trailinger archives are actually a for-profit archive. So if you want to use it, like if you wanted to create a TV commercial using Uh that material, you would have to contact that archive, the Prelinger Archive, not the Internet Archive. It's actually a separate organization uh, for use. uh, So the Internet Archives also hosts a live music archive. Right. And it also has a copy of Project Gutenberg. Oh, the Bible. Which is is named after the... um, you know, the uh, the inventor of the printing press who first printed the Bible, uh-huh. uh, Project Gutenberg um, has been taking books that are in the public domain, either originally or whose copyright has expired, and putting them into electronic form and putting them up on the Internet for people to freely download. And so far they have 5,000 books online. And so, um, so you can also access them through uh, the Internet Archives website or through their own website. So there are a lot of uh, good material that's out there on the Internet Archive. Well, Jimmy, thanks a lot for this great information. Oh, thank you. Okay, and now here's uh, Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the Richter scale? 
The Richter scale is used to measure the magnitude of an earthquake, that is, the strength of an earthquake, and it works on an exponential scale. For example, earthquake of 5.0 is actually 10 times strength, the power of a 4.0 earthquake, and that is how Richter scale works. Yeehaw, and welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's Cowboy Bob with this week's Question of the Week. Yeehaw! Well, you know, I've been sitting out here all day in the stinkhorn of the desert, and you know what? I stink. Woo-wee, I stink. But you know what the other thing that stinks? The stinkhorn fungus. Yee-gaw, that stinks. But you know what I'm wondering? What exactly is the stinkhorn fungus, and uh, what's the uh, operating characteristic? Man, that thing's uh, amazing for one reason, and one reason only. Why is it? Well, if you know the answer, no, I think you know the answer. You email us here at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but yee-gaw, you just might smell a little better. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Mr. Pixel.